Good morning. Wow. It's good to see everybody this morning. I had an interesting thing happen this morning. So sometimes the Lord whispers to you, sometimes he, sometimes he screams at you. So I uh, uh, had some uh, dear brother and sister go, Jason, in Texas, you can't go past 12 o'clock. Don't you know that? And, and, and they're right. I, I need to do that. But then, then I walked in here and Mark's smiling because he knows exactly where I'm going. I walked in here, and, and let me tell you, Mark is one of the most gracious guys you'll ever met, meet. I sat down, and I looked at the order of service. So you might have thought, wow, that felt like it got cut short. And, and that's Mark graciously and kindly making concession for me and my green hornishness and not being able to keep my messages within that time allotment. Thank you for your graciousness and your kindness. And, and to you, I will seek to be repentant and uh, to do better there and to be a better steward of that time that God has given me. So thank you. Uh, C-team's in again today. Um, well, you know, uh, we're, we've come to the very final chapter in Corinthians. Uh, and, you know, it kind of boils down to some obscure instructions uh, that really reveals that this is a letter to some very specific people at a very specific time. And Paul's going to cover a variety of things, uh, instructions for the collection for Jerusalem, his travel itinerary, um, notice about Timothy and Apollos who may or may not be coming, moral exhortations, a commendation for Stephanus for Fortunatus and uh, Achaicus, and I might pronounce those wrong, I don't know. Greeting from churches of Asia and the house church of Aquila and Prissa. And finally, a salutation from Paul's own hand with a final admonition. Uh, believe it or not, this combination of topics can make for an awkward sermon. So I wish Todd was here so I could thank him uh, for this allotment of text. Uh, and just to tell him I hope he enjoyed Music Pass, you know, uh, as I've been left here with 15 messages uh, to do. And then, with that, on top of those 15 messages, which I think Mark saw it coming from Monday, uh, the need to put that in the allotted time. So, uh, it, it will be an interesting morning. And, but you know, it's God's Word. Uh, and it's all inspired. It's all God-breathed. And it's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, uh, to make us adequate and equipped for every good work. And all of it is that. Um, and so when you're doing sermon prep, you're kind of looking for the message. You know, the, the integrating theme that most, most naturally allows your text to hang upon. And so you can imagine, this, these are some difficult texts to do that. But you know, as, as I started to look at these, um, in all these seemingly unrelated, obscure instructions, I came to see several patterns of love to be followed. And love is certainly uh, the, the central message of this book. And, and Paul actually gives several examples, and, and I doubt it's by mistake. Uh, I know that God, in His sovereignty, is purposing these things and so you know I'll be honest I was very surprised in my study to find such rich applicable truths 
and uh, such amazing incarnational examples of love. Uh, and, and I felt very challenged, and you might feel challenged as well. So do prepare yourselves for a peppering of sermonettes. If you get lost, don't worry. We're fixing to start a new sermon any moment. All right? So uh, those of you with ADD and other such, uh, uh, I don't know, call it a disorder or just peculiar ways that you've been blessed, uh, this is your day, okay? <laughs> Let us pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the richness of it. Uh, thank you for the ministry of your spirit. Uh, as, as, as you take your word and your people and confront us with the truths of who you are, with the truths of our deficiency and the truths of our great need of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving him for us. Thank you, Christ, for your submission to the will of the Father and for being all that he intended in you. May you be greatly praised. And may we be inspired by the love that we've been shown and strive all the more to know you and to glorify you with our lives, to incarnationally reveal the great love that we've been shown. So may we show it to others, to the praise of your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we do begin, and I'm, I'm going to get right into it, okay? And, uh, no more hastening. We're going we're gonna to begin at 16.1, and by God's grace, we're going to get to 24. Um, and we start with the big message first. Actually, these messages are going to get smaller as we go. So if at the end of this message you're like, hey, at this rate, it's not going to happen, just stay calm. It'll be okay. It probably will happen. So Paul begins uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1. I'm going to read through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And it is fitting for me to go also. They will go with me. If it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. Okay. So, Throughout this letter, there's been several points where Paul starts out now concerning. And the reason is, is because it's a letter in which the Corinthians had asked him sp some specific questions. And so he starts to respond to those specific questions with now concerning, as he has now. So apparently, Paul has given him an opportunity to, to financially support and help the church in Jerusalem. And what they want to know is, how do we make that collection? And I want to, and so what I'm going to do without trying to yarn spin some obscure passages, when I get to obscure passages, you'll know because I'll go, I can't say much about that. We're moving on to these, okay? So, but there's some background to some of this. So, and I think there's a place where we can pull out some very applicable messages. So, what's the need in Jerusalem? Well, we, we come to find out that uh, from 2 Corinthians and, and uh, 1 Thessalonians that not only are they in great poverty, but they're under great persecution. And so these are brothers and sisters in Christ who have great need. Need just the basic necessities of life and need because of the oppression 
of forces outside of them. And so the basis for the Corinthian help, and actually it mentions it in 1 Corinthians 1-2, is this, that they are saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. Um, Also, we come to find in Romans that they also feel a, a sense of debt to the mother church for the gospel. So they're indebted to them and their brothers and sisters, all one body, all one family. And so what Paul's hoping even, and Paul has hopes beyond mere the provision of Jerusalem, he's also hoping, which we also find from 2 Corinthians and Romans, that the bond between the Jews and the Gentiles becomes cemented through this support from Gentiles to Jews. And that these communities would demonstrate the unity that they have in Christ. That they are one family, a unity that transcends all barriers, ethnic or otherwise. And so this is Paul's hope as well. And and, and so he's insisting in these letters that the Gentiles should not forget their roots, not forget their Jewish brothers, uh, or the hardship that has come upon them. And, And so... He's now bringing this back into play after his clarion call in 1 Corinthians, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. And we've been looking at that topic for quite some time now, and you might find that it's a very convicting and hard thing to come come upon, the idea of not pursuing our self-interests, but actually opposed to those self-interests, pursuing the interest of others instead. And so we have this ultimate vision of the gospel of God, and I was praying it just earlier, of God the Father giving His Son for the good of you. And His Son submitting to Him even unto death for you and for your salvation. And so here in 1 Corinthians 16, this pattern of seeking the good of others is expressed through financial giving of the Corinthians for Jerusalem. Now, This does get into some financial stuff, and and I think there's some things that are prudent for us to consider concerning this. And, you know, if I was sitting down right now, I'd feel a little uncomfortable. I'll tell you why. Because one of the great sacred cows in our culture is, guess what? Oh, boy, I tell you what. You know what? I want you to hold me accountable to everything in the world except for finances, and that's none of your business. Now, I need accountability for everything else, but not finances. You don't get to speak into that, no. That's just between me and God. Oh, okay. Tom Nelson, a mentor of mine, used to say this. You want to see into somebody's heart? Take a look into their pocketbook. What he meant by that is this. We're a culture who ascribes monetary value to things. So what we value, we spend money on. Go look at your budget. You'll see real quick what you value. It'll be very clear. And one of the things you might be faced with as you look at that pocketbook is most of that stuff goes towards me and towards mine. And now, I come to you not as the glaring example of Jesus. I come to you as a fellow sinner who struggles and fails and needs encouragement and help. But, you know, I I, I do the things that I ask you to do, and that's why I usually have a real hard week before I come and preach. Uh, so, and I also think of the arguments in my mind, and, and, and suppose maybe some of, some of you might weave those arguments together. And so I'm looking at it, and I go, well, you know, yeah, most of it's for me and mine, but look, 
there is my tithe right there. Which, by the way, not really a New Testament concept. But, you know, it's not a bad place to start. Uh, but there's my tithe right there. That's for others. That's not for me and mine. And then I stopped and I thought, well, that is an interesting disposition to take. So this family, this family of God that is even higher than mere flesh and blood, uh, this family of God that's based not upon the blood of your forefathers or, or those who went before you, but based upon the precious blood of Christ, that's not mine. See, what I've done is I've kind of sidestepped responsibility for all of you uh, and, and me among you and called you other, which is a really interesting disposition to take. And I see this echoed a lot when I talk to people. I like to ask this question. Label for me your priorities in life, you know, and we always like to do God's number one. And then it's my wife, and then it's my kids, and then it's my extended family, and then my friends. And, and then you go, what about the church? Oh, yeah, 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 they're in there too somewhere. Which is weird since we're said to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We're said to be this family, and yet here I am looking at my true values and, and even the dispositions in my heart to look at money that goes towards this congregation and the ministry of, of the gospel uh, as something that's other than something I'm responsible for. So I'm not really claiming that familiar responsibility that I truly have. And so I have to answer the hard heart question. And, you know, I've posed it to others, but when you have to pose it to yourself, it's a little harder. Do I work to have something to give to another? Or do I work so that I can have more for myself? That's tough. That's a hard question. Well, it's not that hard. The answer that I have to give is the hard one. Because the answer I usually have to give is most of it's for me. And... The rare exceptions are the other way. And they're rare exceptions. And so I'm challenged. I'm challenged by the Corinthians. I'm challenged because they're not talking about a deficit among their local body. You see, actually, the calling that they're answering is much higher because this body is my body that I'm a part of. It's Christ's body ultimately, but it's the one I belong to, right? This should be some of the easiest giving that I have. But you see, the higher calling that they're giving is not just for Corinthian Park Church. The higher calling they're giving is for someone in their context on the other end of the world who's in great need who are brothers and sisters in Christ. See, it's not about, well, we have preferences in our church and we work hard and we raise money so that we can fulfill all those preferences and we can be self-satisfied in the local church that we are, Melanie Park Church or Corinthian Park Church or Fellowship Redeemer, da-da-da-da, whatever. First Baptist of Christ, whatever it is. The reality is this, there is one church and we are all brothers and sisters. And see, 
the Corinthians, and Paul had called them to this, understood their obligation to one another that surpassed even the boundaries of the walls of this local congregation. And so what he's calling them to do is this. In all of your surplus, the Corinthians were pretty wealthy like us, many of them were. In all your surplus, be putting aside in order that you can give for these brothers and sisters far away that won't benefit this immediate congregation for their aid because they're in great need. They're in persecution and they're hungry. And you know, it's funny because I started thinking to myself, man, what churches are like that? And you know what? I wouldn't know. And I'll tell you why. Because there's a blissfulness to ignorance and, and oftentimes I walk right in that blissfulness. But I came to find out about one and I want to share with you just because you might not know. There is a church that's considered one of the most persecuted churches in the world that's coming out of Syria. And I also came to find that they're one of the poorest churches in the world because they've got 12 million refugees with no homes and they hope every day not sure whether provisions for the basic necessities of life are going to come their way. Now here's something interesting. Those Syrians who retreat to a Middle Eastern world, they find a lot of help because the Middle Eastern culture is very hospitable. They'll take in the stranger they feel an obligation to. But if they retreat elsewhere to cultures that aren't like that, they're in very dire need. And I look and I think about Paul and I think about how he would have seen that. And I think he would have seen that these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not weep with them? Do you not hurt with them? Are you not moved in your great abundance to make some provision for them? Not merely because of your obligation to them as part of your family. Not merely because Christ has died for you all and, and united you in Himself. But what about so that the world might see the unity we have. My heart was actually very saddened that the relief they were finding is Muslim relief because hospitality is a part of, of their beliefs and their culture. And it hurt my, and I realized you can say, yes, but Muslims are driving them out. Yes, but there are other Muslims who aren't extremists who are bringing them in and caring for their needs. And I look and I go, therein lies a great opportunity for the world to see the love of Christ. And for them to know who it is we follow by our deeds, by the way we conduct ourselves. And so I felt a great challenge and a great affront to my commitment to self and my neglect for the the enormous weight of poverty and of persecution for those who are my brothers and sisters. And so I think this is a pattern, a pattern of love to be followed, of giving well outside of yourself, well outside social, ethnic, or local church boundaries, and to be saving up in order that we can quite to the neglect of the things that we want for ourselves. And so it's a pattern of love to be followed. And Paul actually gives some principles in two. It's just interesting. Principles that undergird his instructions were this. 
they were to give regularly on the first day of every week. So this isn't like, hey, let's scratch what we got just right now and give it and be like, hey, we gave something, we did good. But regularly, they were supposed to be collecting, and, and universally, each one of them was supposed to be doing this. Every week, each one of them was supposed to be setting aside or saving up, so it was systematic, regularly saving aside, setting up. And, and from what? As one has been proper, prospered. So proportionately to the way that we've been prospered, weekly, we are to be, each one of us, setting aside and saving up so that we would have something to give to others and freely so that no collections might take place when I come. This is a discipline you're to do, and I actually appreciate that at this church we don't do like big collections, like, hey, we need a heave-ho right now, because actually I think the pattern that we're to follow is regularly, weekly dying to self and taking the steward, stewarding the great gifts that God has given us and setting them aside, not for ourselves, not for our plans, not for our budgets, but that we might have something to give to another. I think that's part of the plan of God for our lives. That's a part of his intentions for us to be regularly sanctified, to be dying to self and living unto Christ for his people. And so I think this is a pattern of love and it should be challenging, it is to me, to follow, to remember the poor among the saints and to claim them as your own, brothers and sisters, who you're obligated to love. End of the first sermonette. Shifting now to some exciting material. That's right. All you ADD people, hone back in. Be like, sweet, start all over again. This is awesome. 16, 5 through 9. We're shifting now to Paul's travel plans. This is some exciting stuff here. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, meaning not staying. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. So real quickly here, I just want to tell you about this text. This is his plan. I'm just wanting to go through Macedonia, okay? Because his desire is to come and stay with the Corinthians for a while. They've got a lot of problems. He wants to come help. He wants to teach. He wants to correct. He wants to exhort. He wants to encourage. He wants to build up. He loves them and wants to be with them. And he wants to give them that great opportunity to also send him on to his next missionary endeavor where they support him financially and maybe even send people with him and give him all the provisions he needs. Which, by the way, Paul saw that as a great op opportunity for them to be partakers of the grace of God with him. And he says that um, he doesn't just want to see them in passing. He wants to remain with them for some time. And then he gives this qualification. And, you know, I'm reading this. I'm going, what in the world can be in travel plans? And then I heard it ring out, once again, a place that was convicting in my life. And I thought, you know, maybe that's something to share. And, and it's funny because when we go to 2 Corinthians, we see it's actually a big deal. He says, if the Lord permits. If the Lord permits. And, by the way, in reading of the letter of 2 Corinthians, what you come to find is that the Lord didn't permit, and they were pretty irritated about it. 
Apparently his qualification didn't meet their ears and what he intended. Because what he was trying to convey is this. I have a great desire. I have a plan to come and be with you. But he always has to submit to this one thing that he's not sure he has, and that is the Lord's will, if he permits. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 16, verse 1 and 9. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Again, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And then I come to this one that's really tough. James 4, 13 through 17. I'll just read it. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We live in a society that's very unique. We live in a society with great means. And one of the things that come along with those great means is this. It's seemingly possible to follow and accomplish all your plans. It's true. So much so that we actually expect that our will is going to be done. We actually make plans and expect that that's how it's going to play out. And typically, if we have anything to do with it, that's exactly how it's going to play out. Right? It's funny. Do you know what happens when these plans don't work out? Because I'll tell you something about these plans. It's your vision of what you desire, your image of your life, which I doubt involves suffering for others and giving your life over according to the will of God. I mean, I'll say that, but when I look at that vision, I'm like, boy, that vision doesn't look like that. Okay. It's some vision where I all of a sudden gain wholeness or completeness. The Bible calls that shalom, right? Some vision. This, 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 and it ends up with me being whole and complete. Like, that's great. And, you know, for me, I'm a pastor, so I get to dress all that up with church stuff and be like, oh, that must really be godly. I doubt it. And this is what happens. You know, we're, we're one of those peculiar cultures that have a thing we call midlife crisis. Midlife crisis. They don't have that all over the world, just so you know. That is something unique to our culture, all right? It's unique to cultures who have the means to actually pursue their plans and their visions of wholeness for themselves. So this is how a midlife crisis goes. I go down this plan, this road that I have, and either, two options, either I realize this plan and something becomes painfully obvious. It did not deliver the wholeness it held out for me, and I'm in crisis. And that's often how it goes, by the way. Or my plan didn't work, and I didn't realize it. And so, oh, no, I might not ever achieve wholeness in this life. Either way, you make a new plan and pursue it all over again. This pursuit of establishing the plans of our heart and being willing to sacrifice anything for it is really rooted in the same thing it was for the Corinthians, selfishness. I want all my plans to work for me because, believe me, my image and my will is what's good and acceptable and perfect in this world. 
and we have great slogans in our country. Just believe in yourself, and you can be anything you want. Oh, that's great. Just have faith in yourself. That's your answer to your plans working out, because you're trustworthy. (laughs) Well, this expectation that your plans would work out, and this pursual to the neglect of all others and all else is arrogance, and at its very root, it's evil. Because you know what's evil at its root? Selfishness. Self-centeredness. That is evil, and we're going to hit that a little further. Paul actually cast a vision for the gospel in 2 Corinthians. It says, Jesus saved you from living for yourself. So yeah, that's, that's evil at its very root. That's what it means to be fallen, is to have your soul inwardly turned upon itself. And the process of sanctification is taking that inward turn of the soul upon self and opening it up to be concerned for that of others. And this is very much rooted into our plans that we pursue with such vigilance and sacrifice. But look at Paul, because I'm going I'm to have to go a little further here. Paul has a desire that's good and godly. It's not selfish, is it? He wants to go to the Corinthians and love them and be with them. He shouldn't have to say if the Lord wills. Of course the Lord wants that, right? Well, no. No, that's not actually how it turned out. So do you think that was what the Lord wanted him to do? You see, God has a general will, and for sure it's for you to give yourself in love, but he also has a specific will. And I'll tell you this, here's the crazy thing. The scriptures never really assume that you ever know what that is. Oh, but we've got great jargon to accommodate for this. Here's the spiritual trump cards I hear and use often. So here's the formula. I really desire for this or that to happen, and maybe it's even godly, so I go and biblically validate my desires and then I pray and I feel a great peace in my heart. It's all about me. I'm in a closet here feeling peace in my heart about my desires that I can accomplish. And therefore, I go and tell everybody else, it's the spirit and the will of God for me to pursue this at all costs, even the neglect of you and others. And it's a boast in arrogance because I don't know that. I don't know that. And here's the kind of language we like to use. You ready? These are, these are what I call spiritual trump cards. I prayed about it, and I feel great peace. Great for you. Your heart might be deceptive. Or how about this? The Spirit confirmed that in my heart. What do you mean by Spirit? Well, it felt good. (laughs) That's a dangerous place to go. We use all kinds of religious jargon to validate our pursuit of the path that we've chosen. Because you know what we don't have to do then? We don't have to trust God moment to moment to lead, to guide, to provide. We can just follow our plan. We figured it all out. Well, Paul, though he had great motives and great intentions that were in keeping with the general will of God, never assumed that he knew the specific will of God. As James says, you may not even have tomorrow. So instead say, if the Lord wills holding those plans and intentions very loosely. Giving them to God and saying, earnestly, your will be done. You see, there's a change that has to happen. All of a sudden, I've got to believe that God's will is really the only one that's good, acceptable, and perfect. And mine, 
Well, mine's probably better described as broken, ignorant, short-sighted, and selfishly motivated much of the time. But I'll tell you, if this is a path that we want to follow, we'll need to prepare ourselves because I'll tell you, you'll let some people down and you'll probably experience kickback because you had intended to do this or that and maybe it didn't play out because that's what happened with Paul. He intended this or that and he gave the caveat. If the Lord wills, see, that bothers us. If someone is committing something to me and says, if the Lord wills, I'm pretty dissatisfied about that. You know, I want to become a Tony Robbins, like, okay, try to pick this up. And the guy comes over, no, no, you picked it up. Just try to pick it up. Okay, now pick it up. That's how life is lived. Go do it. Yeah, not so sure, Tony Robbins. I know you sell a lot of books in the American culture that way. I just don't know that's how it plays out. Not for God's people anyway. And so you'll let some people down, is reality. Paul did. The Corinthians were very upset that his plans didn't work out the way he had said. They were very discontent with the will of God. They didn't see it as good, acceptable, or perfect. We often don't either. Doesn't satisfy us. And so, another message. On to the next one. Everybody reset. Okay, new message. Verse 8 and 9, Paul says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And let me say this, I think that can be pronounced adversaries or adversaries, and I mess it up a lot. I'm going to try to say adversaries the whole time. If I mess it up, or if that's another way to pronounce it, so be it. Don't be distracted by it. Well, you might think those were a weird couple of verses for me to section off from the rest of Paul's plans, but if the Lord permits, seem very applicable to us. And this other one struck me as very peculiar. Let me read it again and see if you can pick up on it. For a wide door of effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Have you said those in the same words together before? The Lord really seems to be opening doors for me to go in this direction. And there are great adversaries everywhere coming against me. I've never heard anybody say those words, to be honest with you. Matter of fact, when I hear there are great adversaries coming upon me, here's the words I always hear followed by that. So the Lord must be closing that door. Really? That equals that the Lord's closing that door? Because there are many adversaries? That's an interesting disposition. And I, I would, I've said it. I, I love that idea. But if I look real hard behind the heart of that disposition, what I come to find is this. For me, I believe the great and effective door of ministry God opens to me is going to provide me with comfort, convenience, and general fuzzy happiness in my life. Right? I'll tell you some of the, the doors, of uh, wide doors, of uh, great and effective doors that the Lord likes to open to me. You ready? 
He likes to open up the wide and effective door of the cocoon of my home. Right? Can't you see it? That wide effective door where I get to escape from all the rest that this world has and come into my palace, my kingdom, and do what? Whatever I want. I'll tell you another wide and effective door that uh, the Lord likes to open for me. My refrigerator door. (laughs) It does. I open it and there it is. The Lord going, here, comfort yourself. Make yourself happy. What do you like? What do you enjoy? Here you go. I don't ever see any adversaries in my refrigerator. That's the wide and effective door the Lord has for me, I'm sure. Here's the other one, Netflix. Boy, that is a wide and effective door. But then it dawns on me. Maybe the reason there's no adversary standing there is because the adversary is standing behind me. Opening those doors for me all too easily. Come, take, eat. Come take your rest. Kick back. Enjoy. Come be comfortable. Walk in the path of convenience and plenty. It's yours. You might be outmatched with the adversary, just to be honest. He's really good at what he does. So you got to ask yourself the question. Because here's the thing, when you proclaim the gospel, do you know what happens? Adversaries come up all around because the gospel actually dethrones people. It takes people down from the throne of their life and acknowledges this. I am deficient. I am needy. I don't measure up. My way is not the way. And it turns to God and says, he is all sufficient. He's my only help, my only chance. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other. And it calls you to forsake that life of selfishness and to live a life holy unto God. Who wants to hear that message in your flesh? No one. So believe me, the life of proclaiming the gospel will not be a life that doesn't have many adversaries waiting to devour you. They crucified your master. What do you think they will do to you, his servants? And so some tactics that I'll use. Just keep quiet, you know? So taboo to go and speak that crazy message of the gospel into a broken, I mean, it's foolishness after all. Let's just keep quiet and hope no one notices us. And then we'll come together and be like, yeah, we're, we're all about Jesus. And then go back in the world and go, oh, just be quiet. Don't, I mean, 
we speak into that, they might kill us. I might lose my job. There's no telling what might happen. Just keep that quiet. Keep it under wraps. You know? Why would we want to disrupt our security, our comfort, and peace with the proclamation of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ? Because we know in our heart of hearts to proclaim that message is necessarily to trade in any hopes for comfort, convenience, or peace with this world. But let's ask ourselves the hard question. Let's not avoid that one altogether. Because that gospel also says to us, yeah, you failed. Yeah, you don't measure up. But Christ says, but I do in your mind. Repent. Believe. We get to live the gospel. We don't get, to, we don't get dropped off in a place of despair. We get brought to the foot of the cross. And we get to look up at Jesus and go, I trust you. I got no hope for myself in this world. I trust you. And that's where it should take you, not to despair. I'm often prepared to settle for so much less than what God desires to give me in Christ. I'm prepared to settle for the cocoon of my home. I'm prepared to settle for the promises that my refrigerator might hold out for me. I'm prepared to settle for the fictitious lives I like to live vicariously through Netflix. And I think Christ has called me to a far greater life than any of those have to offer. So Paul sees a very different pattern of love for God and for others. One that we'll do well to pattern our lives after and to reorient ourselves to. Into that sermonette. On to the next one. Verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am, Paul says. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. I'm going to make one comment about verse 12, and there's not a whole lot else to go on, and so I'm not going to weave something together. So here's the one comment. It actually doesn't say it was not at all his desire to come now. It actually says it was not the will for him to come now, and it's left ambiguous. Okay, so it's not necessarily reflective of his desire. You could try to read things into that, but that's not what it says. It says it was not the will for him to come now, and he was looking for, he would wait for an opportunity to come. So other than that, there's not a whole lot of things we can say about that verse, so I'm not going to, but the ones that precede it concerning Timothy, there's some great things that can be said. So as we're focusing on these patterns of love to be followed, Oftentimes what we like to do is this. We like to take an exhortation from 2 Timothy. You know, about Timothy not letting uh, others look down upon him or this or that. And what we like to do is string together this story of this timid and, oh, Timothy, you know, kind of soft, you know, just real intimidated by other people and kind of shy and sheepish a little bit. Here's the problem with that. And, and then we want to read that back in here and goes, that's why Paul's telling them that. Because, you know, poor Timothy is just 
real shy and timid, and we don't want him to run all over him. The problem with that is, as you look at Acts and all of Paul's letters, Paul does not paint that picture of Timothy. As a matter of fact, you, you couldn't paint much more of a picture other than a temperament of someone that's strong, dependable, and self-sacrificing as an evangelist. Uh, Paul actually commends Timothy highly and never comments on his shyness or timidity ever. And so you can't really read that back into this text. So the question you got to ask then is, why does Paul say that he is with you without cause to be afraid or let no one despise him? Well, I think it has everything to do with the work that he's doing, okay? Let's look at the work Paul has, has taken with the Corinthians. What has Paul's ministry looked like to the Corinthians? Let me ask you this. Has it been this ministry? Man, you guys are awesome. I just want to encourage how awesome you guys are and the way y'all follow Christ. And y'all so encourage me because everything you do is just great. Praise God for you, awesome followers of Jesus. Continue. Does that sound like the first Corinthians to you? Ah, it doesn't really, does it? Hmm. How would you describe 1 Corinthians more so than that, whatever that was? What's that? Correction. Rebuke. We don't like that word in our culture. Rebuke's a bad deal. Rebuke. Admonishment. So how do people come against that? Do people usually be like, that's awesome. Give me some more so I can repent some more. Not really. Not really. And so what he's doing here is this. He's trying to let them know that an agent of God is coming to speak forth his word to them. And guess what he'll be doing? He'll be teaching, correcting, admonishing, rebuking, training. Do those sound like words that invoke feelings of fuzzy bliss? They all sound hard to me. Because that's what someone is to do when they're speaking forth the word. Because they're not speaking forth the word merely to give you more knowledge so you can walk away and go, hey, I know a little bit more today. Yay, God. They're actually giving you a vision of God through his scriptures for you to measure your life upon. And I'll tell you where it leads every time. It leads you back to the foot of the cross. It doesn't leave you to walking out going, man, I'm a champion of the vision of God in a fallen world as a fallen person with a bunch of fallen people around me. That's actually not how you should probably ever feel after you engage the Word of God. There's an encouragement that we should give. That encouragement is in Christ. It's not on the basis of how awesome you are. I promise. And if it is, I would beware that you might be being deceived. I rarely read Scripture and don't find huge swaths of hypocrisy and need for me to repent from and maybe I'm an exception I'm just saying that's my common experience with God's word well here comes a guy to speak that word to the Corinthians do you think Paul's warranted in saying this don't give him any reason to fear okay and don't despise him and when they say don't despise him they mean this do not despise this envoy of God and the message that he brings you from God's word. Don't dismiss it. Don't think lightly of it. I'll give you the in-between the lines. 
Repent and believe when he comes to you. And so, you know, I, like these others, I read this and I go, Ooh, okay. I'm reminded of a verse. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Mm. I wish that wasn't in the scripture. Because our culture says this, you have no right to rebuke anybody. Because that ain't love. And yet I find a pattern of love that is very contrary to that, peculiarly contrary to that in the scriptures. And even when I look, we love 2 Timothy, you know. And you know, I kind of want to soften this too and go, yeah, I'll let the Lord's word rebuke me, okay? I'll let the Lord's word correct me. See, I'll go do this in a closet by myself with the Spirit of God. Kind of the problem with that is the Spirit of God exists here in this church, and yeah, He inspired this word for us to uphold the standard of Christ and call one another to that life. And guess what it looks like calling one another to the life of Christ in a fallen world as a fallen individual with a bunch of other fallen people around you? Think it looks like a lot of you're awesome? Probably not. And that's when I realized this. Jason, you're very negligent in your love. Unwilling to speak that truth that might jolt someone into the reality that they're at and might actually make them despise you for a while. Once again, my common path, the path of least resistance, the path of ease, the path of convenience, the path of comfort, not the path of a love that is willing to let go of all those things, that's willing to even suffer unjust harm for the sake of speaking truth and love in someone's life. Our culture is a cowardly culture. A cowardice that's rooted in severe selfishness that wouldn't dare put yourself out because I'll tell you what happens. You put yourself out like that and you know what happens? You also open yourself up to the same. And everybody knows it. So the question is, are you open <laughs> to that? And, and, and you know, I think fundamentally what the challenge is is this. We're starting in the wrong place. We're starting kind of like the Pharisees did with the assumption of righteousness right? That's self-righteousness. My life is typified by me doing the right things all the time. And a need for rebuke would be an exception to that norm of me doing the right things most all the time. I doubt it. I think probably what's normative in a fallen world with fallen people around a bunch of other fallen people is a continual need for confession and repentance. 
people living out the gospel day to day and moment by moment. Not some conversion experience you had back when, when you said hallelujah, threw a stick in the fire and you were saved. But a moment to moment, Paul calls others to, you ready? Repent and believe for today is the day of salvation. He says that to believers. I think we're supposed to be living out conversion continually. And we're supposed to be proclaiming that gospel to one another continually. And calling one another to the good news of Christ. To the praise of his glory. And that's going to look like rebuke, admonishment, according to this standard. The standard of God's word. And sometimes you're going to do that and you're going to be wrong too. It's okay. You repent. That needs to become the pattern of love that we follow. Not the pattern of say nothing to no one so you don't disturb it all. But what we'll do is this. We'll just kind of stay away from them and hold a grudge for 10 years. You wouldn't believe how common that is, or you might, within the church, within the people of God. And so we come, that's the end of that sermonette, and so we come to what is probably going to be the end is Paul's departing words. And I'll tell you this, it was interesting. I came to departing words, and I always thought about departing words as more of rhetorical decor. So at the end, I give something nice and eloquent, and it wraps it all nicely and drops it off at the doorstep. Right? It's kind of what I thought. And I tell you, I went to Mexico City of recent. So I'm going to share just a little bit about final departing words in Mexico City. And what I came to find out is this, that these departing words are really expressions of a shared history that defines someone's relationship. Paul's lived life with them. And these departing words are rooted in that shared history and that relationship that means so much to him. They express in summary form the nature and quality of that relationship to Paul. And so I started to come to find that departing words are actually a really big thing. And I tell you, the Mexicans in Mexico City, my brothers and sisters there across other ethnicities and boundaries came to teach me that because, you see, they're a culture that's very big on not only greeting but giving departing words that are meaningful, not just a bye, see ya, but something more meaningful than that. And so I want to share with you, and maybe we can learn from the Mexicans, some of these departing words that I heard which, and I'm going to try to hold it together because there's definitely, there's emotion wrapped up in those relationships. So Alejandro, sweet brother, hope you all get a chance to know him. He said, now you're a Mexican. <laughs> Referring to me driving across Mexico City twice, both in rush hour traffic. And my willingness to hang out and try to adopt all the customs that I could. And then he said this. We, we won't say adios. He corrected me. We don't say goodbye. Not you and I. We say hasta luego. See you later. This isn't the end. This is where we depart for a time. And he reminded me that he's working on other opportunities and missions so that we might go join them again. Some adults. 
There's a shared history there that's rich and meaningful, expressed in this goodbye. Eduardo can't speak very good English, and I can't speak very good Spanish. But we both heard each other's stories, common stories of drugs and trials and first generations of believers. And so we spoke with no words. We spoke in an embrace, in veils of tears, in compassion for lives that were similar for two brothers who have a whole lot to be redeemed from. And it meant something. Chuck Top had long, deep discussions. Theology, ministry, life. And he insisted, we must continue our dialogue. And we're coming down and we're going to eat meals with you. And I'm like, you have to come. That, that expressed that we had shared something meaningful in a time and a place for both of us. And then finally, Carla Top, when we shared about different Experiences of violence, hers much greater than mine. But she gained a respect as he's a fellow survivor. Though my survivals were minimal compared to hers. And she insisted, watch after my children. And my daughter is going to come. And I want you to take special care of her. They meant something. Well, here's Paul. Meaning something with this final one. And I'm going to only read these last two verses. And I'm going to stop there. He says this, be on the alert. And I'm going to use the, uh, the New Revised Texas edition here. Y'all be on the alert. This is what that means. A communal vigilance against the worldly threats of the faith. Communal. Don't be on the alert for yourself. Be on the alert in this community for any leaven that might be coming in to taint the integrity of this community of Christ. Be on the alert, each one for the other. You are your brother's keeper. Stay alert. Stay watchful. He actually says this again in Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. That's how you stay alert. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Who are you on the alert for? All of us, together, to root out any evil, any influence of this world that might infiltrate this community and to not be cowards, but to speak the truth in love according to God's Word. And then we get to the next one. Wow, this is a profound one here. Y'all stand fast in the faith. And this idea is holding fast to the traditions of the gospel, of Christ's death and resurrection, which Paul had delivered to the Corinthians. And actually, I'd like to play a quick video here. It's one minute. But I think it's going to describe and capture in a picture what I can summarize and finish here in the very end. Do we have that ready? Is it possible? Let's do it. It's my favorite one. I've been looking for an opportunity to play this clip my whole life, I think. And this one's appropriate because stand firm is actually a military image that urges them to hold their ground and not retreat before an enemy who is coming. All the forces of hell is coming to descend upon you and Paul says be on the alert and stand firm don't be moved <laughs> 
probably know it. William Wallace. Here they are in battle array. Some of them took off because they're cowards. And the rest of them sit down on their knee with spears as all the forces of hell come against them. And they're riding at them. And they're increasing in speed. And they're coming closer and closer. And here's William Wallace leading them. Hold! And everybody wants to run. Everything in them wants to run. Hold! And they get closer and closer. And they come over the hill. And here they come right upon them. Hold! And there they are, fixing to break the line. And he says, now! And what was dependent was that every single one of them held their ground and responded in unison. That they could hold their ground to these forces that have come upon them. Is that the life you're living right now? If it's not, here's the danger. You might have been swept away into those very forces of hell that are coming upon the people of God. Wake up. Be on the alert. Stand firm because the adversary will come against you. And the final word, be Act like men, which means be courageous and very strong. And you can imagine, if that's really where you are, you're going to need divine intervention for the courage and strength you're going to need to stand against those forces. And do you know what all those forces are coming against? This is the weird thing. You think that battle might be something outside of yourself, and in one sense it is. But do you know what that tool is of that adversary? The love of self. That's the root. The love of self is what puts you in that fast-moving swift with all those forces of evil. It's what allows that swift to move through this congregation and no one say a word. And so Paul's final admonition is actually an admonition for the living of the gospel when he says this, let all that you do be done in love. I'm going to leave you with one verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Do you hear the gospel there? He died so that they who live no longer live for themselves. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And Paul ends this letter, love brackets this final deal, and he says this. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Because all of his rebukes, all of his admonitions, all that he said to come against the error of their ways has been done in love. Because he's dearly seeking their good. He's seeking their good with all he has, regardless of what it means for him and even his relationship with them. So I encourage you by the power of Christ, because of the love of Christ that controls you, die to yourself and live for the good of others to the praise of His glory. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your grace. Thank You for the power You give us in Your Spirit in this church. 
Lord, let us be a people who are on the alert for one another. Let us be a people who stand firm against all the forces of hell as it comes against you, your purposes, and your people. Lord, let us be those who are strong and courageous in the provision that you give. Let us do all that we do in love for your name's sake.